So I think that's enough for now. So I think we can begin. Thank you. Hmm. So this is our last night of the retreat. And um, I trust I speak for all of us that I'm very touched with the sincerity and heartfulness. And um, at this point, looking out into the audience here, it's a pretty darn good-looking view. <laughs> and um, just want to acknowledge your hard work and looking into yourself, knowing that the key is inside. So I'll read you a little poem that reminds us of this from Kabir. He says, Are you looking for me? Are you looking for me? I am in the next seat and my shoulder is against yours, but you will not find me in the stupas. You'll not find me in the Indian shrine rooms, nor in the synagogues, the cathedrals. You won't find me in the masses and in the curtains. You won't find me at Spirit Rock. Nor will you find me at Insight Meditation Society or San Francisco. You will not find me if your legs are winding around your own neck, or if you're eating nothing but vegetables. But when you really... Really, look for me. When you really, really look for me, you will see me instantly. You really, really look for me, you will see me instantly. And yet, of course, um, this is poem is pointing to this looking within. And yet, uh, for many of us, that looking within is um, not that apparent, nor even ventured into. And there's a very haunting um, reading from St. Augustine that was written in the year 399. That's a long time ago, 399. But he says, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains. They wonder at the huge waves of the seas, wonder at the long courses of the rivers and at the vast compass of the ocean. People wonder about the circular motion of the stars and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Walk right past themselves without ever wondering. That's a pretty haunting And yet I also can understand that, how long that I have walked past myself, whatever, wondering. But here in the retreat, we're actually attempting to do something very different. We're beginning to look more deeply into ourselves, to wonder, who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? In short, what is this life? It takes a lot of courage, a lot of vulnerability to ask these types of questions, to begin to look within. A psychiatrist friend of mine was telling me one day after practicing the 32 parts of the meditation that 
this is really abusive. I'm sorry, he said disabusive. And um, I didn't know what disabusive meant, and I thought it's probably not a good word because abuse is in it. So I looked it up in the dictionary, and it means something like that when your whole orientation of how you see the world all of a sudden flips upside down, it's very kind of unsettling. And so he was speaking about that um, this practice is disabusive. Perhaps it's like, for those of you, did anyone here see The Matrix? Yeah. So something like taking, you all took the green pill. And then we begin to see the head here is just thread-like outgrowths from the skin of mammals. Thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. That's what happens when you take the green pill. You begin to see what it really is. And as this practice deepens, we begin to penetrate into the elemental nature of things. Solids, liquids, motion, temperature. Atomic particles, protons, electrons, neutrons, empty space. As we begin to penetrate in, we begin to see things more clearly, more closely. Of course, as we see within, it can be filled at times with what we sometimes metaphorically say, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. We're here, though. Shall we stay asleep or shall we wake up? This path of going inwards we find in different spiritual traditions. Of course, in the Dharmic tradition, Latsu speaks about this, no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. The Christian tradition is a beautiful poem from St. Isaac who lived in, in um, Iraq in the 7th century. He says, be at peace with your own being and then heaven and earth will be at peace with you. Enter eagerly, eagerly into the treasure house that is within you and you'll see the things that are in heaven. There's one single entry. The ladder that leads to your heart is hidden within you. So dive into yourself. And there you will discover the stairs by which to ascend, this diving into ourselves. And our friend Kabir, he says, don't go outside your house to see the flowers, my friend. Don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body, there are flowers. Inside this body. This path inward, of course, brings us in touch with our life the areas that we can celebrate, the areas perhaps that we need to heal, getting in touch with our woundedness, our pain, and learning to acknowledge what has not been acknowledged. Although this path at times can feel very challenging, I want to offer you some hope of this turning inwards. This again was written by a Christian mystic in 
the Middle Ages. So it's got some Middle Age uh, language. Francis Fenelon. He says, as the light increases, we could call the light mindfulness, as the light of awareness increases, we can see ourselves to be worse than we thought. (laughs) Sound familiar? We're amazed at our form of blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of the heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We could never have believed that we had harbored such things and as we stand aghast, as we watch them appear gradually. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them can wax brighter and we can be filled with horror. So here's the hope. (laughs) Bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So bear in mind for your comfort. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. It does seem kind of counterintuitive to turn into the pain, into the fear. I loved last night the talk on fear. Again, it's mentioned sometimes that the enlightened ones are referred to as the fearless ones. It seems almost counterintuitive, turning into my fear, into my pain. Now, you may have heard my voice that it has an accent from Boston. And I'll never forget when I was 16 years old, driving um, my family car, a 1964 Ford Galaxy. Um, Winter happens, of course, in Boston. And my first year driving in snow, my car would get in skids, and I'd get really scared. And I'd turn away from the skid, only to get myself even more in a skid. So tell my father about this one day, and he said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn your wheels into it. And when I heard that, that scared me. And I thought, oh, what does my father know? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I don't, want, I don't want to go to the place that scares me. I want to get away from it. So I kept on turning out away and kept on skidding out. I experienced the futility of turning away and skidding out until there was only one alternative left. Eensy beensy little turn into it. I tried it. And I couldn't believe it. And that moment of turning in my car, I could feel my car beginning to straight, straighten. And I feel like that really planted a seed for my life. A seed of turning into the fear. Because it does feel counterintuitive. You want to get away from it. So I love this metaphor of turning into the skid, turning into the pain. So there's a very powerful reading that I'll share with you, actually a couple of them. And this is called Unconditional by Jennifer Wellwood. And it's all about turning in to find your heart. She says, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition I flee from, it pursues me. 
while each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. It seems pretty radical. The radical notion of turning in. Perhaps that's how the wheels may get straightened out. Dana Falls, she says in a beautiful poem, resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fair fantasies, failures and success. And when loss rips off the doors of your heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, the practice becomes simply to bear the truth. And in the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Many beautiful wisdoms here. It is indeed important that we work with these stories of our lives. This is the very place that we heal and to become free. There is great power in truth. It's a powerful quote from Jesus that says, If you say what's within you, what you say within you will save you. And if you don't say what's within you, what you don't say can destroy you. Very powerful words. And even in the story, I loved the Angulimala story of a few nights ago about the guy that was cutting off people's fingers and wearing a finger garland and ran into the Buddha and and, um, became a monk and got enlightened. And there's actually just a little bit more I want to add to the story because it involves the power of truth. And that is that after his enlightenment, um, he came across one day hearing that there was a woman crying and crying. And he ran up to her and said, what's going on, ma'am? And she was, she was pregnant and she was actually in labor. And, and she says, help me, brother, help me. I'm going to give birth. Help me. I don't know what to do. Help me. And he said, yeah, I'm a mo- I, I don't know what to do. I'm going to run back and go tell the Buddha. And so he, he went back and he talked with the Buddha quickly. And the Buddha just said to him, just tell her something that's true. And he said, okay. And he starts running back and he just starts thinking, tell her something that's true. Tell her something that's true. What's true? <laughs> so he's approaching her and he's hearing the screams and he's thinking, what's true? What's true? And then all of a sudden this flash came. And so then he repeated three times, sure, by the power of the truth that I have not harmed any living being since my ordination, by this truth may this baby come out healthy and safe, and may the mother be safe. He repeated this three times, and the woman gave birth, and all was well. And um, it's quite often in Theravada Buddhist countries that when the monks are visiting uh, a woman that's going to give birth, they will chant the Angulimala Sutta as a protection, the act of truth, the power of truth to have a safe delivery. 
It's even said in New Zealand in the Māori culture, and perhaps this is a little bit more mythological than real, but it's a powerful teaching story of when a person is ill in a village, um, there actually was no indigenous medicine. And so when a person was ill, what the villagers did was that the person who was ill would get in the middle, the, the villagers would come out and the person that was ill would get in the middle of the circle of the villagers would be around that person. And then one person, and one of the villagers would ask that person that's ill, just this one sentence, and then they would wait. And that sentence was, what has been left unsaid? And they waited. Sometimes an hour, sometimes a half a day, sometimes a day, sometimes they said it took a week or more until everything that was unsaid was said. And then they said that the cure rate rate was 98%. Perhaps this is more of a myth, but in some ways there's a lot of wisdom of this power of truth. What has been left unsaid? A couple years ago I was teaching a retreat here and I was talking with an older man late at night. He was telling me about this estrangement that he had with his son. Hadn't talked in a couple of years. It was incredibly painful. And so we talked a, bit, a little bit about what, what has been left unsaid. And he said, you know, like if you happen to uh, die during the night, is there anything you want to say? Anything you'd want to write him? There's actually a pad of paper in the room and I kind of just left it there after we left. And... Um, Went in the meditation hall for a while and came back and looked in the room. He was still there writing that letter. And I actually saw him sometime afterwards at another retreat and said he he mailed that letter and things were... There's a little bit of some openings of some change. What has been left unsaid? I love this about the Dharma, this potentiality that we can begin to turn into our fears, into our pain, and find our hearts. Yes, it might feel kind of counterintuitive. But as we begin to turn, and I witnessed a number of people during this retreat turning into the pain, acknowledging the pain, opening into the pain, and finding some understanding, some insight, some peace, their heart breaking open. When we speak about faith in the Dharma, the Pali word is sada, and it really means confidence. And it's from our direct experience of the practice, it gives us confidence to turn into these places. Because we know that there is a ruby waiting inside, as Kabir would say. There's a teaching inside. I love the Dharma because it puts back the responsibility of our lives back to ourselves. We may have um, mentioned earlier about the five remembrances. This is a practice that I actually do nearly every day. And the first four we've named here um, in, in different ways, but the first one I'll just read them through because it's a powerful list. That I am of the nature to grow old and I cannot escape from growing old. Number two, I am of the nature to have ill health and I cannot escape from having ill health. 
Number three, I am of the nature to die and I cannot escape from death. Number four, all that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change. I cannot escape from being separated from them. Number five takes a different turn. It's speaking about each of us taking our own responsibility for our welfare. It says that my deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. This is an invitation that we can begin to work with our awareness to take action, if you will, towards our hearts, towards wisdom. In the Dhammapada speaks about that the mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own very thoughts. I'd like you to think about this, that our intentions, they shape our thoughts and words. Our thoughts and words mold our actions. Our thoughts and words and actions shape our behaviors. Our behaviors sculpt our bodily expressions. Our bodily expressions fashion our character. Our character hardens into what we look like. We get the face we deserve. The good news is we can make a change. Neuroplasticity is speaking about that in the brain and we can make a profound change in our hearts. What I love about the Dharma is this practice of mindfulness with awareness. Viktor Frankl has a beautiful quote that between the stimulus and the response there is a space and in that space lies my freedom. Speaking to the Choice to awareness with awareness is choice. It's like turning on a light in a dark room and now seeing clearly where it is that we are. The love about the Dharma also is so deeply based in humility, kindness, compassion, and wisdom. The Dhammapada speaks about to abstain from evil and purify, purify the mind heart. This is the teachings of all of the Buddhas. That hatred never ceases by hatred. Only love ceases hatred. This is a universal law. I love the Dharma because of these profound refuges that we can take. Speaking about the possibility of really taking responsibility for ourselves, taking refuge in awakening, taking refuge in the teachings that support awakening taking refuge in the community of those that are dedicated to awakening and that we are part of that lineage that has gone back some thousands of years. This is a profound refuge. I love this about the Dharma. In 1996, I nearly died of a very severe infection called necrotic fasciitis or flesh-eating bacteria. And uh, when the doctors were going to do the surgery on me, it was on my foot, fortunately, but I had a rampant infection. I was going septic. Um, I asked them, I, ha- I had a little, I always keep with me a little pouch with a Buddha, Buddha on it, and I had them tape it on my heart, on my chest. If I'm going to die, I'm going to have the Buddha in my heart. I did have fear, 
But I also like, if there's anything that I wanted to cling on to, is like this triple gems was my refuge. I love that about the Dharma. I love that it's based in ethical living, this thing of creating safety and kindness. What a greatest, greater gift that we can give to all of our fellow beings that we share in this world is kindness. To not cause harm to one another. I love this about the Dharma. In speaking about these qualities of ethics, being that tonight is our last night, I really want to offer you, as a way of going, some of the best medicine that you can go home with from this retreat. And that medicine is called the Eightfold Path. That's the fourth great realization, or known as the fourth noble truth. If there was a book or a teaching that I would take with me on my desert island, it would be the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is complete. The whole Dharma is within this Eightfold Path. This would be my companion. It's a prescription. And it's very practical. It's so practical on how to walk the path towards peace, the lessening and potentially ending of suffering. We can say that the Eightfold Path begins and ends with wisdom. Wisdom in the, in the first part, that, that you, have a, you have a sense of understanding that there is suffering and that there's a path towards its lessening and potential ending. That's a type of a wisdom that gets us on the path. So the first part of that wisdom is what's called wise understanding. You understand, yes, I was mentioning these four noble truths about suffering, its causes, its pathway to its end. You understand that that you are the creator with your own mind of your own heavens and your own hells, and you're beginning to take responsibility for your mind and your body. You understand that our actions create results. And with this understanding, you're trying to live a life with less harming. This is the beautiful quality in Sanskrit, Pali, of ahimsa, the practices of non-harming. The next is wise intention. Three different areas. The first is renunciation, which in the West we get very scared of that word. Renunciation. Uh Uh-oh, what am I going to have to give up? It's talking about giving up the sense of grasping and craving that we explored the other night. But in the deeper meaning, it's the renouncing of self-destructive tendencies that don't serve our health and well-being. Now, that's actually a pretty decent thing. I'm not scared of renouncing my self-destructive tendencies. That actually thinks is important and good. So that's perhaps a wonderful way of using the word renunciation. There's also another quality with intention of doing goodwill that's guided by metta, by loving kindness, opposing ill will and anger. And also the intention of harmlessness that's guided by compassion. May all beings be free of danger and pain. As we bring attention into how we live, we understand that this is the pathway to us 
wisdom towards steadying our hearts and our minds. And next comes these very important principles that are so incredibly practical in our lives is how do we live our lives? So we've been keeping noble silence, but we're going we're gonna to be heading out tomorrow. We're going to be talking. How do we speak? Sometimes we say that wise speech is speech that's honest and kind. It's useful. It's beneficial. It's timely. And that we work with restraining, if you will, false speech. And there's a very practical reason. When, when we're not speaking true, it breaks trust. If we're slandering, it creates division, breaks unity. If we're speaking harshly, it hurts people's feelings. If we insult, it takes away one's dignity, shaming. Sarcasm, we feel slighted. Idle and meaningless talk is, kind of takes our energy away. So we can bring into this knowable path of how we conduct our lives with our speech. And in force of informs our actions, we began at the retreat taking these five precepts of non-harming and stealing, not harming with our sexuality, keeping silent. Of course, in our day-to-day life, it's really working with cultivating wise speech and to uh, abstain from getting intoxicated. These are very useful and practical steps of helping to steady the mind and the heart. The next is wise livelihood. The work that we're doing, is it causing harm to ourselves or to others? Are we getting sidetracked? The only thing is just about our own financial gain. Yes, we need to make livings, but is it guided guided with self-promotion and putting other people lower. And of course, the Buddha even spoke about very practical things like, you know, it may not be so helpful to be working in places that are making weapons, poison, intoxicants, slave trading, prostitution, exploitation. How do we bring our integrity to our work? How do we bring our integrity to our interpersonal relations that we have with our colleagues? So wise livelihood. The Buddha spoke about that these, this cultivation of living with integrity, with virtue, naturally begins to settle the mind and the body. We won't be filled with remorse. We won't be filled with guilt. When we're living a life in harmony, when we're living a life with integrity, we naturally feel happier because we're not with this type of remorse. And particularly in the regards to the meditation practice, these types of ways of living helps us to settle our minds and our hearts. So we move into wise effort, which is part of this category of concentration, steadying the mind. Wise effort has a very important aspect. It's the effort to restrain greed, hatred, ignorance, sometimes known as defilements, the effort to restrain them and to abandon them, and further cultivating and developing wholesome states in maintaining them kindness, friendliness, compassion, integrity. 
so we can develop these ways of restraining and abandoning greed, hatred, and ignorance in developing and maintaining these qualities of non-harming, of kindness. Next step is wise mindfulness. In this retreat, we've been delving into mindfulness practice, into these four foundations of mindfulness of the body, of feeling tones, of the mind states, and the dharmas. The last is wise concentration to help settle the mind that leads to deeper settling, to absorption, to in Pali, sometimes known as jhana. But also, most importantly, leading as the mind gets settled to insight, to wisdom. This wisdom begins to penetrate deeper into this comprehensive understanding of these Four Noble Truths of suffering, its causes, and its path to freedom. It begins here, inside our hearts. So I felt it's very important to speak tonight about these very practical steps to bring into our lives. Mary Grace and I had the opportunity tonight to speak to uh, Cindy, who had broken her ankle. And I was just so touched. We both were really touched. We were asking, so how are you doing? She goes, well, you know, this is, this is my practice now. <laughs> she got it. Because the truth is, yes, this retreat will end tomorrow, but actually it's just the beginning of a way of life. And actually when we really begin to understand the practice, we realize that our life is the practice. And the retreat is whatever comes up in our lives. These eightfold steps will be guiding posts for us to live our lives in ways that we can grow and blossom. So uh, Dr. Seuss has some good advice from the places you'll go. He says, I'm afraid that sometimes you're going to play lonely games too. Games you can't win because you're going to play against you. All alone, whether you like it or not. Alone you will be something quite a lot. And when you're alone, there's a really good chance you're going to meet some things that are going to scare you right out of your pants. And there are some down on the road between hither and yon that can scare you so much you won't want to go on. But on you will go, though the weather be foul. On you will go, though the hacking cracks howl. Onward up many a frightening creek, though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak. On and on you will hike, and I know you will hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. You get mixed up, of course, as you already know. You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure where you step and step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act and just never forget to be dexterous and deft and never mix up your right foot with your left. (laughs) Oh, the places you'll go.
So let us live with our lived experience. Kabir says, there's nothing but water in the holy ponds and I know because I've been swimming in them. And all the gods, they're sculpted of wood and ivory and they can't say a word. I know I've been crying out to them. And the sacred books of the East, they're nothing but words. I look through their covers one day sideways. What Kabir speaks of is only what one has lived through. If you have not lived through something, it is not true. Again, this perennial invitation, if you've not lived through something, it's not true. It's the sense of, see for yourself, ehipasiko, and Pali, see for yourself with your own direct experience. So I'd like to um, maybe end with a couple of stories. Death always seems to hover in retreat practice. It's the big anti-card, you know. And actually, there was a Zen master that once said, if you didn't die, you'd have a really big problem. <laughs> you know, maybe after about 10, 15, 25,000 years of all the pizza and sex you want, it could get old. <laughs> Death is this powerful card that reflects the fragility and the preciousness of this life. Yeah, we think 100 years is long, but it's not long. As I mentioned earlier, my Cero said on his 80th birthday, 80 years felt like that. remember once talking with one of my monk teachers about my fears of death, and his name was Zodica. And he just asked me a question, and it was a great question, and I knew the answer right away. So I'd like to ask you the question. What would you like to do? Would you like to die with peace in your heart or fear? It's a great question. I know the answer. Peace. So I'd like to maybe end with a story about my most beloved teacher, Lindit Sierro, who's a Burmese monk. First, maybe I'll kind of just paint you a little picture of the type of person he was. And Leonard Sato ordained at the age of 20, and prior to his ordination, he was a novice monk since he was a young boy. And he died at the age of 98. So he was in robes for 78 years, and then in as a novice monk for a number of years before that. And Leonard Sato was the type of personality that was incredibly quiet and incredibly unassuming. There are some spiritual teachers and people, of course, like, you know, like when you walk in the room, like you know they're there. There's a type of a charisma, and I, I've seen this with wonderful spiritual teachers and different people. But if Lainetzero was in the room, you might see this lamp first. <laughs> you, you may not notice that he was sitting there. He was kind of the opposite of charisma and attention being brought to you. And I 
you know, I was with him for, you know, when I first met him, like, like some months, and he didn't, like, and all of a sudden, like, like who is this guy? <laughs> like, it's like, like, he's not, there's no attention calling to him. And, like, you know, I'd see him, like, go, the monks would go on house chants, and we'd go in this van, and he was the oldest monk with the most reigns, the mo- most years of being a monk, and, he, you know, they always supposed to sit in the front seat, and line said, he's just fine just going into the back, and then, no, 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 you've got to go sit up here. He's very kind of humble, unassuming, so inwardly, utterly content with himself. He was the epitome of mind your own dharma. He just was contained and content. And um, there'd be many nights I stayed and lived with him for eight and a half years where um, at night I'd just come in and I would massage his feet quite often sometimes almost every night. And I could communicate with him because we actually had our own kind of funny language. I spoke some Burmese and I know quite a bit of Pali and English and he knows Pali and Burmese and knew a little English and so we could actually have these very in-depth conversations and even some of the Burmese people didn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> we were both Tuesday born, we figured out, and um, in Burma tradition, we're friends for life. He was my father, my, my godfather, my beloved Seattle, who I felt saw me and loved me unconditionally in a way that I have never experienced. But I'd massage him a lot at night, and he was not one for words, and I would just for hours just be listening to him breathe, and I'd be transported to some of the deepest, most silent forests I've ever been to. In those days, he had the practice of not lying down, sitting in a chair. Some of these forest monks take on practices of not lying down. It's an ascetic practice called the Jutunga. There's actually 13 of them. One of them is the sitter's practice. And actually, my other teacher, Tumpalu Seto, who actually had quite a lot of charisma, incredibly humble, incredibly kind, amazing, amazing teacher. He was the one that introduced me to the 32 parts of the body. He didn't lie down for the last 50 years of his life. It's kind of (laughs) mind-boggling. He had a pretty comfortable chair, but you know. (laughs) It's like, didn't lie down, though. Anyways, lying at Seto, one night I offered my room to a visiting monk, and lying at Seto said to me, okay, you can stay with me in my room. And I thought that was like the best news I ever had in my life. I felt it was like Christmas Eve. I was so happy. going to sleep with my Seattle. And plus he's staying in the chair and I'm curious, what does that bugger do all night? <laughs> and so I lights went off and I kind of flipped over and fell asleep. And then I woke up maybe like an hour or two later. It wasn't long because I was so excited that thing was Seattle. And I turned over to look at him and he just winks at me. <laughs> and so I went back to sleep and got up very soon after that because I was just so excited and I turned to see what he's doing now. He winks at me again. <laughs> this happened a number of times. So finally I turn over and I'm facing Seto. He's sitting in the chair and I'm facing him. And I kind of make believe that I fall back to sleep. My eyes are really closed. And then every now and again, I'd open them up just an eensy-beensy bit. 
And he'd be looking at me, smiling. And this went on all night long. Who is this guy? I have no idea. And he'd have just this little loving smile. It was uncanny. It happened all night long. Um, Time went on. I left the monastery, got married, and... When I was 47, which is now um, about 13 years ago, my wife gifted me with uh, a very wonderful surprise with a, uh, an airplane ticket to Burma to see Seattle. And actually she'd contacted a number of our friends and they all... She had this whole project, Bob Goes to Burma. <laughs> and uh, I was gifted with this money to go. It was like, unbelievable gift. Oh, unbelievable. And so I, I went to, uh, to see Seattle, and during this visit, this was actually the, the last time that I ever saw him. He died a few years later at the age of 98. On the very last uh, night with Seattle, I was saying my farewells and hoping that I'd come again, but it turned out that I never did. And I realized that I still had one big important question to ask him. And so um, there was some space and so I asked Zero this question that was really very much in my heart. After all, he'd been a monk for, you know, 70 plus years at this point and, you know, he's a forest monk, a meditator, he's a practitioner, not a scholar monk, but a practicing monk. And uh, though he was very knowledgeable, of course, of of the Dharma. So but I asked Seto, Seto, um, you've been meditating all your life and I, I just want to ask you, what, what are you going to do when death comes knocking on your door? And I also said, Seto, you know, I know you're 90-something and you know, I'm 47, I know that death could come at any moment, but you, you know, your age, is <laughs> what are you going to do? And so he looked at me for quite some time and wasn't smiling, <laughs> just looking at me. And then, then he smiled and then he said to me, Bob, are you afraid to die? And that kind of took me off guard. I didn't ask him that question. I asked him what he was going to do. <laughs> and he saw that I got kind of ruffled. And he looked at me kind of sternly and said, you need to meditate more. <laughs> I said, yes, that's right, Seattle. <laughs> and he smiled after that, but you need to meditate more. I said, okay. And then a little time went by and I paused again and then I asked him again, said, okay, I'm going to meditate more. What are you going to do? (laughs) And so again, he looked at me for a really long time and then he smiled and then he said something that I'll never forget that I'm going to pass on to you. And he said that if I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If I feel something, I'll be mindful of feeling. He went through the senses, then he went into the mind, and if there's mind states that are coming, thoughts and emotions, I'll be mindful of thoughts and emotions, mind states. This is how I'm going to die, and this is how I want you to die. I want you to die mindfully. It was a great gift. I couldn't have imagined a more wiser and better answer to die with your heart, your heart open. 
And if life has been incredibly amazing, why, maybe death is too. I want to be there. Like the last thing I would want is to be asleep when I die. I want to be there. Some people say, oh, I, I hope I die in my sleep. Uh-oh, that, that's my worst fear. I want to die awake. A couple years later, I was at my grandmother's 100th birthday party. She actually lived to 103. And I remember, and I was telling her about Lindetzetto and that story about dying mindfully. So here's this like little old Jewish grandma from Russia, and she goes, you know, Bobby, he's wise. That's a good idea. And she had never meditated a day in her life, and she thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> to die with a heart wide open. So let's just sit for a minute. So I honor this to my beloved teacher, Lindit Sierra. Simple, kind, wise, contented. May all beings be at peace. So thank you, and we'll have some walking practice and come back for the last meditation at nine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.